and welcome to Say Hi to the Future, a podcast aimed at highlighting the human side of ingenuity, clever, inventive, and original thinking. My name is Ken Tenser, CEO of SpiderWorks, a leading business consultancy for mid-market organizations and entrepreneurs globally. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. With me today is Omar Abedin, founder of PacTech Hub, Pakistan's first venture studio, helping founders build sustainable startups. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Omar Abedin, welcome to Say Hi to the Future. Hey, Ken. Uh, thank you for having me. So, Omar, it seems like a lifetime ago that we had coffee in, a, in Toronto, Canada. How, how have you been keeping, first of all? Um, busy. Busy. Uh, it has been a long time. Uh, one thing I remember clearly about that day is that you were kind enough to give me a copy of your book. And uh, it's it's something that's in my uh, in my reading, um, I, I refer to it every so often because it it had such interesting ideas. And you know, there there's some people you meet uh, just once, and it kind of stays with you, you know. And that that meeting has really stayed with me. It's it's been at least, I mean, it's been more than five years. I I know that. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's so, a while, but no. Well, but thank yeah. you for that, Omar, and. It's obviously stuck with me too. I very much look forward to to talking with you today and 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 to catching up. Um, so w- one of the things that and, and I think you, we've we've talked about before is that you see yourself as a change agent and a growth driver. So what are those things, and h- how did you become those two important roles? I don't think I've become them. I, I really subscribe to this concept, the Japanese concept of ikigai. I'm sure you've heard of it, right? The four circles of life and the 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 happiest man, the most fulfilled person on the planet would have four circles, all of them sitting on top of each other. So they look like one circle, right? Passion and profession and creativity all kind of combined to give you one whole. And so the Japanese view this as something almost unattainable, as something to aspire to, but it's a journey, right? Being a change agent kind of comes naturally to me. I think I, I like taking things head on. I don't really, I'm not the most diplomatic person in the world. I've, you know, I've been told that many times. And so, you know, when you, when you realize that, you know, there are certain, there are certain tools that are not in your wheelhouse, then you just move on and you say, okay, fine. You know, if, if this is my role, then this is my role. So I think accepting who you are, and accepting the reality of what is happening around you allows you to sometimes see changes that are happening and embrace them faster than other people. That's all. I mean, you know, if it's inevitable, burying your head in the sand is not going to help you, right? So the concept of burying my head in the sand is uh, anathema to who I am. So that's, I guess, where the change agent piece comes in. And because of that, uh, my poor and long-suffering uh, spouse has uh, has put up with you know moving from Karachi to Dubai to Karachi to Dubai to Saudi Arabia to Montreal to Toronto to uh, back to Dubai and then eventually to the U.S. and then back to Dubai and then you know we're we're now in Karachi and 
this has been us for the last 25 years. So our kids have grown up with this continuous, you know, different points of view, different ideologies, because one of my favorite quotations is that, and I'm, you know, paraphrasing badly, is that um, nothing destroys prejudice uh, like another point of view, like travel, you know, um, <laughs> So you, you can't be prejudiced against a people when you've gone and had dinner with them right. or, you know, traveled in their land because you understand them at some point. Right. That is kind of what I've tried to be my whole life. Uh, similarly, you know, I've been a marketer for a long time, right? 30, almost 30, more than 30 years, actually, at this point. But I've you, never you can lie, Omar. You can say 20. No, no, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I lose track. I honest, honest to God, I lose track at points, you know, and you'd think you'd remember 30 years and, you know, you're like, damn, yeah, but I remember all of those years, right? The good, the bad, the ugly, the, the infinitely forgettable, but, you know, you still remember them because you lived them. Uh, but I've, in those 30 years, I've worked for, you know, a lot of companies, um, multinationals, local companies, global companies, like all, all kinds of companies. But I've never worked in the same vertical twice. Hmm. Always in marketing, but never in the same vertical. And, you know, people ask me, like, how did you manage that? Because, you know, we have a tendency to try and pigeonhole people. We want to we put people into nice little slots, right? Oh, he's an FMCG marketer. Oh, she's a bank uh, or a you know financial services marketer, or he or she uh, you know he or she is an automotive marketer, as an example. Right. And I I just refuse to do that because there's so much to learn, there's so much to do. Why should anyone silo you? Why should anyone get to pigeonhole who you are? So you know it's been it's been a journey, it's been a hike. So so Omar, that's I mean look, that's an an incredible backstory of, of travel and of learning and of, of building who you are as a, as a change agent though I, I would imagine that look we don't look to the past we build on the past we build on our experiences of which you obviously have many rich experiences when you look forward though uh you know to be a change agent again i think you need to be very strong in the futures area so what what do you see coming up that, that will impact, you know, business organizations or, or us as individuals? Ken, you know, I, I'm definitely not Nostradamus. Um, I, I would honestly believe that you have a, you have probably greater insight into this space than I do. Uh, there are some things obvious, you know, obvious to me at this point, and I'm sure they're obvious to your listeners as well. But if you if you were to try and list down uh, in no particular order of relevance, right, or importance, uh, I mean, look at the impact that AI is having um, in, you know, in just everyday life. Until now, it's been at the back end of stuff and people haven't really been interacting with it. They don't really know, you know, they just get, they have the opportunity to get annoyed with uh, automated banking systems that you know don't really work and so on and then all of a sudden the tech takes a, a massive leap and comes into the forefront with you know chat gpt right and i i started using it you know pretty soon after it came out and i have been blown away at how much more productive it has made me uh, things that i would need to sit back and research and really dig into like, you know, basic things like writing a policy statement, 
you know, that that policy would have taken me probably a week of research and, you know, digging through uh, different websites and trying to find the right policy for the right uh, fund and so on and so forth. And now I just, uh, you know, I go to chat GPT. The, the trick is in the prompts. So if you write the most specific prompt possible, chat GPT will give you a very specific answer. So I've, I've started, I mean, I love it. It scares the hell out of me at one level. Yeah. And at the other level, I'm like, okay, I can't, you know what? Okay, whatever, you know, they, they have my phone number, they have my location. Uh, you know, they, they know everything about me already. Uh, so what the hell else am I going to tell them that, 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 you know, they don't already know. So, so artificial intelligence is going to really start uh, playing an important role, a visible role in our lives. Along with that, I think you're going to start seeing hardware and humans interacting more. So whether it is, you know, driverless cars or, uh, drones that are running on autopilot and doing deliveries mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, robots that are doing meet and greet services. Um, you know, you're going to start seeing much more intrusion of physical hardware that is not human um, or, or not obviously human powered. You can see it. It's going to happen. I mean, Uber is waiting for the day that they no longer need anyone to drive their cars. Right. That's that's the day they they will hit profitability because then the the dream the nirvana situation for Uber is that every car in the world is a you know um, is a commodity that can be monetized, and so your car in your uh, garage could suddenly get up and go off for a drive and you know <laughs> make some money for you and come back and you're like wait what happened. And you, you may not even notice because it might be at night while you're sleeping and your car will know you, right? So uh, the car will come in and plug itself in and get charged. And when you, when you need it in the morning, it'll be there. And then, of course, you've got you know, this huge impact on financial services, right? So the, the Gen Zs and the, the alphas that are coming out have a very different view of fixed assets, than you know our generation or our parents' generation did. I mean, for us, it was it was an aspiration to be able to own a home. And when you talk to young people, they're like, "But why? Why should I sink my entire life into trying to buy this white elephant, which I will use at best for one third of my life, which is the third I spend sleeping, right? Maybe it'll be slightly more than that, but that's it. And so every, every all the rest of the time." this this residence, this house is of no use to me. So they have a very different point of view on fixed house. They don't want to own cars. I mean, they right. like cars, but they think that cars are to blame for a lot of the problems that we have in, in the world in terms of emissions and so on. They have the same problem with flights. You know, we're going to see more and more decision-making being impacted by this younger generation that is, in my view, uh, the most aware of what is happening in the world, of what is happening to the environment, um, of what our, they, they are holding us accountable. I mean, you don't have to follow, um, you know, the, the angry uh, young environmentalists to know why they're angry. They have a right to be angry. Yes, for sure. Um, you know, those, those environmental factors are going to start hitting us in the face. You spent two days in an airport. Imagine if, it stops snowing in Toronto over the next hundred years. And instead, you know, all the forests die and they're replaced by desert. What would happen to Canada at that point? 
right? Yeah. Now, now take the reverse scenario for Africa and say, what happens if the Sahara becomes green? Hmm. Right? Uh, what like there are massive changes happening in the in the in the climate uh, of the world and you know the worst case scenarios are that you know one third of the world will be underwater in the next hundred years one third of the world that we know yeah so that's the worst case I'm hoping that human ingenuity and common sense will begin to prevail at some point and you know we will be able to step back from the abyss but I mean, there are vast swathes of land that in the foreseeable future, you and I might get to see that happening where, you know, large, large, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of square miles of coastal land, uh, you know, just vanishing. And then trying to reclaim that from the sea is not going to be easy. Yeah. So you've got climate tech that's going to, you know, really step up and, you know, we're going to have to start Meaning what we say when we talk about recycling, I mean, you know, Canada has done some really good work in terms of trying to recycle and, you know, reduce waste and reuse what we have. But the global footprint of North America remains 10 times higher than the rest of the world. Right. You know what I mean? So uh, the U.S. is 5% of the world's population, but contributes some stupid amount of its trash, right? Like 40% of its trash or 50% of its trash. And you've got this gigantic island of trash floating in the Pacific, the size of Texas or uh, bigger now. I, I mean, I believe it's growing every year. How do, how do we deal with that? And where is it going to wash up eventually? Because at some point, it's just going to clog up everything, right? And then we all die. Because without the tides, without the currents, uh, you know, all the weather goes to crap. Uh, so, you know, it's... It's a very, I think now the problems are becoming so well known. Um, I'm hoping that those solutions will start emerging and they will emerge, I believe, from developing markets. I think they're gonna come out of Africa and Asia and the Far East uh, because we are the people who are going to be affected by it the most. So, you know, I have a lot of hope for the young generation. I'm, geez, I think we're all putting our, uh, you know, we're all putting our money, behind behind these these young kids uh, because let's face it our our generation and the generation before us we sucked at it it wasn't a priority Absolutely. for us and you know we have to we have to be held accountable yeah. and our kids are going to do that because you know, the kids don't care they just don't care yeah no you're you're absolutely right with that and i mean um I, my, my kids are you know mid late 20s moved out now but um they're individual commitment and part of their career commitment is um, righting wrongs, whether that be around um, circular economy or, or women's rights, equality in general. And, and I think, you know, what we've overlooked, um, you know, when we look at the next generation is that they were the first generation that had the capacity to have a conversation with anybody anywhere in the world on any subject, any time of day or night that they so choose. And they have a, a connectivity and an understanding that, frankly, our, our generation uh, never, I mean, we never even imagined that. We were still <laughs> looking at encyclopedias, which were years out of date. So I, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And it, 
it also lends itself, I mean, your discussion about the changes in X generation, it lends itself to a discussion about, you know, where you focus or where your career focus is turned to. And that is helping support founders and, and resilient startups and growing startup startup ecosystems. So tell us a little bit about that, because again, your, your beliefs seem to be so well-founded in such a perfect position today to, to, to drive this change. You know, for the last 10 years or so, I've been kind of inching towards entrepreneurship um, and, you know, trying to figure out what I can do. So I did my first startup in 2010 in Dubai, and then I worked for a fintech startup. And, you know, and then I had the chance to work for Kareem, which was acquired by Uber uh, a couple of years ago for about $3 billion. And I realized that there are, you know, there are multiple roles that, that you can do. You can be a mentor, you can be an advisor, uh, you can be a marketing consultant or uh, some other consultant. Uh, you can also be a founder yourself or a co-founder, or you can be an early uh, joiner at, at a startup, you know, um, from, you know, join a startup from the very beginning and watch it grow, be employee number one or one through five or something like that. Or you can be an investor. Um, and there are different types of investing. You know, you can be a, an angel investor writing small checks uh, from your savings, or you can do it professionally. So I've done pretty much all of that. I also I also run a venture studio in Pakistan, um, and and actually we have some uh, we have some partners outside of Pakistan as well. So we work with about a dozen companies, and we help them to get ready for fundraising. But we also help them to build sustainable businesses. And the idea is that you know the old uh, burn uh, burn models burn right. based. Models where you know every every dollar you spent you actually lost two dollars those those burn models are a thing of the past right no vc is uh is supporting that kind of a model now omar i'm i'm just chuckling because a number of years ago uh i was i was uh, writing columns for the, the globe mail canada's national newspaper and i was looking at the valuations and my master's in finance and and i wrote burn rate is just not a financial measure. And I got destroyed in my comments about how long ago did you go to finance school? And, mm -hmm. and, and I'm very glad that it's come back. Sorry to cut you off, but I'm just so glad that it's come back because, yeah, at some point you have to make a dollar to grow your business. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing, right? I mean, the that model was, I think, spurred on globally by the availability of really cheap money. You know, interest rates were at a historic low, uh, real estate prices were at a historic highs and growing, you know, and then there was COVID, COVID, you know, trillions of dollars in relief funds made its way to right. people's bank accounts and that money had to go somewhere. When, the, when this current, whatever you want to call it, economic slowdown, um, came about, people were initially uh, taken aback. No one was expecting it. Um, at least anyone who's not an uh, economist was not expecting it. There are there are quite a few people who saw the writing on the wall and pulled out of uh, Wall Street. You know, they pulled out of uh, the uh, the stock market, liquidated their funds, and just sat back because they knew that a crash was coming. And you know, more power to them. The ninety nine. 0.8% of people were caught completely off guard. And people saw their 401ks um, 
or their RRSPs, as they're called in Canada, completely <laughs> fall through the floor. Uh, you know, if you lose 90% of your valuations in terms of uh, stocks that you hold, it doesn't really make you very keen to invest further, right? You're, you're at that point, you're just like, oh my God, please, please God help. Because at that point, you know, we all remember God, right? Uh, when there's blood in the streets. So the, the reality is, I think right now, venture capital is sitting on $400 billion of what we call dry gunpowder. They're just not investing the money globally. Uh, valuations have come off a great deal. Um, in you know, investors are being much more. Uh, it's the same investor, by the way, who two years ago was running around like a headless chicken trying to find the next big thing. <laughs> was able to write a check on a pitch deck, and now the level of due diligence and you know um, involvement is completely different. It's same investor, different environment. So for me, the the transition. I mean, I still love marketing. I'm still a very passionate marketer. So I you know I work with startups and help them with their marketing and branding strategies. But uh, for me, the real opportunity now is to be able to write those checks myself, to you know, invest in the founders that I believe in, that are you know, they're really tackling big problems that are, where you know, the market size is not the 1%, it's, you know, it's the 90% or the 85% of the population. So you know you you've got amazing founders in fintech and e-commerce and um, health tech, ed tech, uh, artificial intelligence. So so many amazing ideas coming out of markets like Pakistan. In the last couple of years, I've met um, over a thousand founders. Hmm. You know because that's just I love doing that. I mean every day I talk to two or three founders, and I'm not talking about two minute elevator conversations. I'm talking about 30 minute to an hour discussions about their business, their model, where they're going, where they're coming from, why they're doing what they're doing and so on. I, I remain very optimistic about the future, but the, the short term future, the next six to 12 months, 18 months, 24 months is gonna be a grind. Anyone who comes out at the other end of this will be the leanest, meanest, fastest, best version of themselves possible because they will have survived the next 24 months. And most people will not survive. A lot of companies will just end because they no longer have the cash to be able to you know, continue their businesses. They have not been able to pivot. They've not been agile enough to change their business model and you know, figure out a way to, to fix what needs to be fixed. Um, and you know, many of them will die with bowls in their hand in front of investors. Right. And investors will say, um, yeah, no, 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 thank you. you know, have a nice day. Bye-bye. And, and that's it. You know, I think the opportunity for investment now is probably in terms of the quality of people that are looking for investment, the new lower valuations at which investments can actually be deployed, and, you know, the correspondingly higher uh, equity percentage that you can get for the same dollar, um, makes this a very attractive time for investors who have a long-term perspective. If you're a short-term investor looking for a you know, 2x or 3x exit in a year, this is not the time for you. But if you can hold on for five to seven years, you will leave this market with 10x or 20x. Mm-hmm. It won't be a, a single-digit uh, multiple. It'll be a double-digit multiple. And, you know, I mean, you got to believe that the world will still be here in five years, right? 
it's not like we're all getting up and going to Mars with Elon. Uh, not not many of us actually have tickets on that uh, on that particular spaceship. Just on Elon, actually, I just had a thought. The, you're going to see a lot more impact-based investing happening, right? So people who are actually investing for the betterment of the planet, and yes, they are, of course, looking for ROI, but they are, they're really interested in doing something that will save the planet from, from, from us, right? So it'll be across multiple verticals, but anything that has an impact on, you know, for the betterment of humanity, I think you'll see more and more dollars getting deployed towards that. It's just a, just a thought yeah. because I recently uh, sold all my Tesla shares because of the way that Mr. Musk has been behaving. I'm no longer willing to invest in a company or a CEO who behaves in this particular way. It's not in line with my values. I would like to believe that I'm a values-driven investor and I will not invest in someone who... Um, who behaves in this particular way and says the things that he does, it doesn't really matter how much money you're going to make for me. If our values are not aligned, I'm not interested in investing in you. The other case recently was a very pathetic state of affairs at Scott Adams. Um, you know, the guy who, uh, who wrote all those books in the 90s about the um, uh, Dilbert, the Dilbert series? Yes, 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 yes. Right? So he just recently turned into a flaming pile of crap. Like I, I don't know where the, where the hell, what happened to this guy, and I, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing a post on LinkedIn where I'm taking those books off my bookshelf, and you know, giving them away because I have no room on my bookshelf mm-hmm. for racist uh, bullshit um, that you know, and this is a guy that I looked up to for years. I used to, you know, his books have been shared around my circle for the last 20 years. And now I'm just like, you know what, dude, I, I don't want to identify with you. Shame on you. Have you lost your mind? What is wrong with you? So anyway, sorry. It's, no, no. It's, <laughs> but I, I think you'll see a lot more people making decisions yeah. based on what they believe to be right or wrong. Oh, yes. I, I think, yeah, yes, value-based investing is um, is critical because it, it's, I mean, if you look at the business side of it, um, the consumer, whether it's yourself or maybe even 10x on the next gen, they are looking to align um, with the values of the companies that they, that they buy from or interact with. And you know what? Kudos. I, I, I think that's um, incredible. The other thing I want to touch on, too, because you touched on, um, well, quite a bit on the environment and and change and startups relating to it. I'm finding one of the biggest challenges in, in the World Economic Forum pointed it out. So it's not there's no original thought on my behalf here. It's still not relatable to the average business owner. And, and I'm I, you know, one and a half degree target for the world. I have no idea what that means. And so one of our, you know, the, the things that we un- are undertaking at Say Hi is, is it is a, you know, it's a for-profit but social-based um, activation is trying to help companies understand the, the impact of carbon reduction, but also the impact on their business operations to make it a little bit crunchier for the average individual. Very interesting. I'd love to learn more about that. Is that something you find in general, though? I mean, is that something that 
when you look at investments today, can they are they articulating, especially in the green or clean tech space, the, the impact on the owner or the leader or the founder of, of the organization and its operations? So if I take a step back from that, because that's a that's a pretty granular question. Mm-hmm. If I take a step back from that, um, I'm seeing more and more pitch decks in which, you know, the the UN SDGs are somehow being referenced or addressed. And that's sort of the base level, in my view. If you're doing a business in which you're not even bothered uh, about the SDGs, um, you know, even if it's a side effect of what you're doing, at least be aware that you could potentially be positively impacting one of the UN SDGs. So that that to me is the baseline. If someone is not even willing to look at that or they don't understand that, uh, that for me is a red flag. That means that you're kind of oblivious to what is happening in the world and you have no interest in making the world a better place in any way, shape or form. Now, coming to, you know, sort of where where does it start from in a, in a startup? It starts from the leadership. It starts from the founder. Mm-hmm. If the founder does not have a belief that making the world a better place or leaving the world better than you found it is important and critical and, you know, to the core of the business, everything they do around this will be lip service. There'll be no seriousness. There will be no um, measurement of impact. There will be, in fact, there will be no impact. There'll be a lot of greenwashing, which is unfortunate. You know, we see very large companies doing that very successfully, Hmm. uh, unfortunately, uh, especially the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, and and all the related industries around that uh, that particular vertical. But if you if you believe as a person that you know you your business should be carbon neutral at you know at worst it should be carbon neutral, mm-hmm. then, you know everything you do takes that into consideration. Um, do I do I need to fly? Can I drive? Can I take the train? You know, if you're in Europe, you can take a train anywhere, honestly. Yes. Uh, in, in North America, especially in Canada, we're used to driving, you know, hundreds of miles at the drop of a hat. And usually in a massive uh, pickup truck with, uh, you know, a 5.6 liter Hemi engine that, you know, gets you five miles to the gallon if you're lucky, right? Yeah. Um, that is going to change because it's just, First of all, you know, gas eventually will become stupidly expensive because, you know, gas is a finite resource at the end of the day. Plus, I honestly believe that taxation in Canada, um, I know that all Canadians will will instantly be upset with my saying this, but I think that the taxation on fossil fuels is not high enough. We need to make it so unattractive. It's like buying a pack of cigarettes, right? You pay, what, $20 for a pack of eight cigarettes now? Right. I mean, there's a really punitive cost uh, to to smoking in uh, you know in parts of the developed world. The same cigarettes are available in Pakistan for a dollar and a half for a pack of twelve or sixteen. You know, because in Pakistan it's like meh. We've got two hundred twenty million people, so if you die of lung cancer, who gives a shit, right? It's mm-hmm. there's really no seriousness around it. Yeah, the the packs have all those really graphic visuals of lungs and this and that and the other, but, and, you know, nobody, nobody really buys into it. So it starts with the leadership team, starts with the founder. If the founder makes it a priority for the business, 
the business will solve problems from that point of view. If it's not, if it's all about the money, if it's all about the short term, um, and you know, hell with the planet, then you know that's that's the way the business is going to be. And there's lots of businesses like that. Uh, doesn't mean that you should be investing in them. That doesn't mean you should be, you know, deprioritizing others over them. So, I I will say though I I not that I disagree with anything you've said at all. I think though there is we still haven't provided a completely accessible offer to business. And what I mean by that, especially in in a country like Canada, where you can talk about electric cars and talk about electric trucks and electric school buses, their ability to do their work, if you will, at minus 20 degrees, it, it is not very good. And so yeah. we really, we you know, I, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm all for electric vehicles. Um, but yeah, th- there are certain uses that still, even if we mandated, simply cannot do what they're meant to do um, sure. be- because of because of the other climate conditions. So I think the onus is as much on um, research and science to, to you know, to not make claims about um, how far a truck or a car can go at 70 degrees, sorry, 70 Fahrenheit, so 25 Celsius, we'll say, right. when the average winter temperature low is minus 20. Yes. So no, no doubt. And, you know, that, that comes back to the point of investing in education, right? So um, North America, again, uh, I'm not going to hold Canada to the same standard as the U.S., but I mean, let's face it, the, the standards of education um, in North America right now are not the best in the world. And yet yes. we expect we expect innovation from North America. We expect innovation from, you know, Silicon Valley and um, the, the other sort of beating hearts of the financial sector. I, I don't really expect it from Canada because, you know, uh, can, the Canadian economy is a little bit more conservative. Uh, it's a, you know, I don't really want to bash Canada because, you know, it's, it's home, but sometimes I get really frustrated with the level of conservatism that I see in, in many aspects of Canadian life. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that embrace, that, that embrace of innovation and, you know, really driving the change. We have amazing universities. We have amazing uh, incubation centers and accelerators, but you don't hear about, that level of innovation coming out of Canada, which is, you know, I think there's a massive opportunity there. So I mean, in the US, the numbers are very, very bad, right? Whatever, 27th in the world in this and 60th in the world in this and 100th in the world in that. And, you know, um, US exceptionalism ends there. It's not, you know, if, if your education remains at the, the level that it is today, the level of innovation coming out of the U.S. will be driven by nationalities like India, Korea, China. It will not be driven by American nationals. And then you will continue this disenfranchisement that's happened in the U.S. where one third of the country still believes that the uh, the previous guy won the election. Like, right. I mean, come on, guys, what, what well have you fallen down? You know, it's it's like there's an alternate reality that's happening there. So without education, nothing works. And STEM education in particular, you're absolutely right. 
without a focus on STEM or STEAM education, mm-hmm. um, you know, innovation will die it'll, or it won't die. It'll just move somewhere else. Right. So, you know. Yeah. So, Omar, I've really appreciated your time today. And as, it, as, um, say, as our time at Say Hi is coming to an end in this discussion, there, there is one other topic I just like to throw out and, and, and or understand, and that is WANDER. Um, what is it and what are some of the success stories? Well, we don't have any success stories as yet, but the idea behind Wander is to enable entrepreneurs from the developing world to that are looking for you know, North American markets um, to actually follow um, or align their personal ambitions with their corporate ambitions. So take, the, take their startup ideas mm-hmm. and help them to scale them in Canada. And from Canada, obviously, to the rest of uh, the, the continent. Um, and the idea is that, you know, Canada has some amazing uh, entrepreneurial visa programs, um, as do some other countries. Uh, you know, entrepreneurial visas are becoming more and more popular around the world. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for, for the most part, uh, the level of investment required is relatively low. Um, so what we do is we bring startup founders together with investors, you know, create a startup which is reasonably well-funded and can support itself for a year. And then we help them through the um, visa process where we help them to not only get uh, an entrepreneurial visa for their startup, but also for the founders and their families. And then, so we're currently working with three or four startups to help them to do that. It is a very time-consuming process, uh, as you know. There are no uh, shortcuts to immigration in Canada uh, because now you're talking about, you know, two parallel streams that have to approve your visa as you go through different stages of the process. But I believe that if you allow people to align their personal and professional goals uh, in the long term, it's a win-win for uh, for Canada. Uh, you know, fresh blood, fresh insights, um, innovation, you know, if you can't make it, then import it, which has been, uh, you know, Canadian uh, solution for the birth deficit, let's say. For the last 10 or 15 years, Canada has right. been, um, you know, a net immigration market. Um, and, you know, those immigrants come in with money, with talent, with skills, with ideas. And, you know, that overall, I mean, since I'm one of those people, I, I'm kind of biased in in this response, but I believe that those immigrants, for the most part, bring a lot of energy and, you know, they, they help to transform the Canadian landscape into a more innovative one. I, this is just my point of view. And, you know, so that's what Wonder is trying to enable in a particular area, which is the entrepreneurial visa program for startup founders. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. And I mean, there's one thing that we completely, well, many things we completely agree on, but um, diversity. And, and you know, at all of our Say Hi events, we recently had a, a speaker in the U.S. say that it was the single most diverse audience he's ever been invited to speak before. And this is a TEDx speaker. And, and diverse from age, from background, from gender identity, from race, from what, like, I'll, I'll, cap it, I'll, I'll call it the uh, capital D diversity. Um, nice. So... Thank you so much for your time, uh, Omar. It's, it's been a pleasure reconnecting and hopefully we can do it again in person uh, sooner than five years. 
Thank you, Ken. Um, it's been it's been an honor and a privilege to be on, and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. If you enjoy this episode and you want to support our show, leave us a review and join our mailing list by visiting www.spider.works. That's S-P-Y-D-E-R.works and subscribe to our channel. Leave us a comment with who we should interview next. Thank you for listening and see you all next Friday.